0: The Gugu Yamather people speak a language, which is also called Gugu Yamathur, that is interesting and valuable in many ways, but which is perhaps best known for two main global distinctions. The first is that it is the source language for the word kangaroo, which refers to a specific type of kangaroo, the eastern gray, which is itself, strangely, a large black type of kangaroo. There's a commonly shared myth that the word kangaroo was an aboriginal word for the phrase, I don't know. But this, though satisfying and funny, doesn't seem to be true. The misunderstanding arose from Captain James Cook and his crew running through a rough word list that had been compiled by a botanist who had visited the area 18 years prior, and they were comparing that list with an aboriginal local on a later visit, and the word kangaroo stuck to all kangaroos because of that first documented on paper significance. They pointed at a gray kangaroo and assumed that meant all such animals rather than just that one type of animal were kangaroos. The other somewhat famous attribute held by the Gugu Yimethir language is its use of pure geographic positioning rather than egocentric positioning. What that means in practice is that rather than saying something is left or right, in front or behind, based on the perspective of oneself or potentially another person or location, you give directions based on north, south, east, and west. You give absolute directions rather than directions based on a temporal, momentary, or subjective position. Just how absolute this rule is within the language has been disputed since the concept was first documented and studied. But this doesn't seem to be a kangaroo situation. There is something here, and it's not a myth, even if it's not absolute. The relevance of this linguistic difference either way is that it shows how subjective most other languages that are alive today, and those we know something about from the past, tend to be, in terms of placing objects in space. We talk about locations in terms of other locations, in terms of ourselves, rather than giving absolute positions that are true, regardless of where we or the person we are speaking to might be geographically. And that's a fascinating concept and not something that we may have even noticed had we not had a different perspective, another approach to use as a means of comparison. What I'd like to talk about today is a tool that we've used to establish absolute positions for several decades, and a collection of alternative tools that are encroaching upon its long-held dominance in this space. (music) You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. On October 4th, 1957, the Soviet Union launched the first ever successful artificial satellite, the Sputnik 1. The Sputnik 1 entered an elliptical low Earth orbit where it operated at full functionality for three weeks before its batteries died, and then another two weeks in silence before it fell back down to Earth, burning up in the atmosphere upon re entry. The Sputnik 1 scared the bejesus out of the United States. It was launched at a very heated moment during the Cold War, and the U.S. had no idea how far behind they were compared to the Soviets in terms of space-related research and engineering, until they heard the little blips, the same signals everyone else on Earth with the right hardware and frequency could also pick up, that were projected down to Earth from the two-foot metal ball-shaped satellite and its antennas. Interestingly, It was that moment that seems to have triggered two massive efforts within the United States— The first and better known of these two storied paths is that of the United States' own space race efforts, which really kicked off when they realized that they were being beaten by their communist foes in the vaunted, politically vital field of scientific research and space exploration. The second and lesser known consequence of the Sputnik 1 was the creation of the technologies and infrastructure that eventually became GPS. GPS stands for Global Positioning System, though it was originally named Navstar GPS, and that designation is actually kind of a brand name of Satellite Navigation System. It's not the universal name for this set of technologies. It is the name for the version of that set of technologies developed and owned by the United States government and operated by the U.S. Air Force. When Sputnik's radio signals were detected on October 4th, 1957, scientists at MIT in the U.S. noticed that the Doppler effect applied to these signals, meaning the frequency of their wavelength increased as the satellite approached and decreased as it moved further away. What that meant in practice was that they could determine how far away it was in space based on the frequency of these signals. Just looking at the relevant waveform could help them figure out its position. Based on that insight, they suspected that if you already knew the exact position of a satellite in orbit, you could determine how far something on the surface of the planet was from that satellite. What's more, if you had several satellites in orbit, all of which were positioned in predictable orbits with known locations, you could very, very accurately determine the location of just about anything on the planet around which those satellites orbited, so long as that thing you were trying to locate had a receiver for those satellites' signals. And if you could put a bunch of such satellites up there so that there were always four or more of them in view with line of sight to any place on the planet, you could determine the exact location of anything Any device capable of picking up those satellite frequencies anytime you liked. An early version of this system was built by the U.S. Navy in 1959, and it was initially used to keep tabs on submarines. The initial six satellites in the network increased to ten, and though it would often take hours for the subs to get their position, because they had to wait for enough satellites to come into view over the horizon at one time to establish a detailed location... It proved the concept was viable and justified the expansion of the program. In 1963, the Aerospace Corporation demonstrated that these sorts of satellites could send signals from orbit to receivers on the ground continuously, rather than just in planned bursts, which meant that a collection of them could be put into orbit, sending a continuous stream of position-establishing signals to anything on the ground capable of receiving them, and that could allow these things on the ground to figure out where they are on the surface of the planet with incredible resolution within feet of their actual location. In 1974, the first of 24 newly funded satellites for this network were launched, and 11 more went up between 1978 and 1985. These newer satellites contained atomic clocks, which allowed their transmissions to be more accurate than their precursors. And some of them contained sensors that allowed them to detect the launch or detonation of nuclear devices, planet side. After these new satellites were installed, the system was officially redesignated as the GPS system instead of Navstar GPS. In 1983, US President Ronald Reagan offered all airlines the option of using the GPS system, once it was completed, to improve navigation and safety. This famously came on the heels of an international incident in which a South Korean airline accidentally went off course into Soviet airspace and was shot down by the Soviet Union. Two years later, in 1985, the U.S. government contracted private companies to develop airborne shipboard and man-pack portable GPS receivers capable of using the signals from these satellites to locate their bearers on the planet. And then in 1989, the first final development model of a GPS satellite was launched into space. A GPS-capable handheld device called the Magellan Nav-1000, which looked a bit like a chunky handheld calculator with a giant antenna that you could swing up to receive satellite signals, was put on the market that same year. In 1990, the U.S. government intentionally weakened the quality of the GPS system's signal due to concerns that their military enemies might use it to strike at American interests. In 1995, the first complete cloud of GPS satellites became active, with 27 satellites in place, 24 of them operating at any given time, with three held in reserve to swap in for any that failed or that were, potentially, at some point, attacked or otherwise broken. Each of these satellites weighs between three and 4,000 pounds. That's between about 1,361 kilograms and 1,814 kilograms, and each circles the planet twice a day. They were installed in orbit so that at least four of them are in view with direct line of sight from any place on the planet, all day, every day. And in 1998, it was announced that the GPS system would transmit two additional signals down to Earth by the year 2000. These signals would be used for non-military, especially airline industry, purposes. The first GPS-enabled phone, which was a feature phone, a little candy bar-shaped thing with a small black-and-white non-touch-enabled screen called the Benefone Escape with an exclamation point in the name, as was the fashion in the tech world at the time. That was released in 1999, and in 2000, those new civilian-focused GPS bands went live, which overnight made the GPS signals available to the public ten times more accurate. This led to an explosion in use cases for the technology, and in the following years, GPS receivers were built into just about everything, from phones to cars to shipping containers in-car navigation became a thing in 2001. A new generation of GPS satellites was launched in 2005. A few upgraded newer generation satellites were launched in 2010 and 2011. And there are currently 31 GPS satellites in orbit that we know about anyway. There's a decent chance that the military has a bunch of their own up there somewhere that the rest of us are not privy to knowing about. And as of 2018, due to innovations in the GPS receiver space, the tiny little GPS chips tucked into our smartphones are accurate within a foot Which is pretty stunning when you consider that we know where we are within that distance because of a collection of satellites sending signals to our phones from about 12,540 miles or 21,180 kilometers away out beyond the atmosphere. Now, that historical and technological groundwork in place, the article that I'd like to unspool today, comes from TechCrunch, and it's entitled, The GPS Wars Have Begun. This may not be immediately evident to everyone. It certainly wasn't to me when I began researching this topic. But not only is GPS a very recent innovation that we've come to take for granted in a very short period of time. But it's also not monolithic. There are alternatives that are in use around the world. They just aren't as popular, successful, or ubiquitous as the global positioning system set up by the United States. The only truly complete, fully operational alternative satellite navigation system in the world at the moment is GLONASS, G-L-O-N-A-S-S, which is an acronym for Global Navigation Satellite System. GLONASS, which was developed and is owned by Russia, began development in 1976, and rockets carrying component satellites began launching six years later in 1982. In 1995, the satellite constellation was complete, but later that decade, some of those satellites failed, and the system, though technically still operational, wasn't anywhere near as effective and reliable as the United States GPS system. In 2001, Vladimir Putin decided it was important for Russia to have a system of this kind of their own, and one that was fully operational, so he made sure funds and support were available to fill in the blanks that had emerged when the project was left to flounder in the late 90s. The project was so important to Putin's administration that it consumed a full third of the Russian Federal Space Agency's total budget in 2010, which is wild. They have a big space program, so that is a lot of money and attention for one project. GLONASS was up to 100% coverage in Russia by 2010 and was back to having a fully operational constellation of 24 satellites in late 2011, which is the number required to have full worldwide reach. There's a new upgraded version, of this GLONASS satellite set to start launching in 2019. And according to Sputnik News, which is a news outlet controlled by the Russian government, they intend to launch a whole constellation of these upgraded satellites around the moon by 2040, which would allow them to more capably map and navigate the surface of the moon, presumably for a base that they intend to build. Russia isn't alone In wanting to have their own satellite navigation network decoupled from United States influence, however. The EU is launching their Galileo network in 2019 and 2020. China is launching their Beidou network in 2020. In 2018, Japan launched a so-called GPS augmentation system called the Quasi-Zenith Satellite System, or QZSS, which includes a network of four satellites that will add their functionality to the existing U.S.-owned GPS network to provide increased superior coverage in Japan and the surrounding area. India has launched the foundation of a seven-satellite network of their own, also focused on their region and the surrounding area, but fully independent of the GPS system. A failure of one of those satellites has left them without a fully operational date as of the day i'm recording this when that constellation will be completed but it will presumably happen sometime in the relatively near future and the uk has also announced their intention to look into maybe building their own satellite navigation network since post-brexit they will no longer be under the auspices of the eu's galileo network but some experts are questioning whether that might be bravado speaking rather than economic and scientific reality there are no solid plans on the books for a uk based satellite positioning network at the moment each of these projects are costing the countries doing the development between an estimated 4 and 12 billion dollars and untold amounts of time resources and manpower so the question here is why what's the point of building out a regional or global network of navigation-focused satellites, dozens of them on the high end, if you want to have reliable global coverage, if someone else has already done it, and if that someone else is making that network available to you and your people already? There are three primary answers to that question. There are soft power, economic, and military benefits available to governments that control infrastructure of this kind. Soft power refers to the ability to negotiate on favorable terms, to influence events, and even to adjust cultural and political norms elsewhere in your favor. The United States has enjoyed an abundance of soft power since the end of World War II, at which point American film, music, TV, fashion, and countless other soft power loci were disseminated around the world, with a good amount of economic and manufacturing heft behind them. And that, in turn, recalibrated many other cultures' norms to align with those of the United States. So while hard power is the ability of a country like the U.S. to stomp around and to, say, essentially, do what we want or we will send in a fleet of aircraft carriers to make you, soft power is the privilege countries like the U.S. enjoy that allows them to generally get their way without ever having to threaten. Having a system like the GPS in place and making that system, powerful and costly as it is, available near universally, means that other countries who make use of it and who build their own infrastructure around and atop it both appreciate that gift and know that if they ever really overstep and piss off the United States, that could result in them losing access to this infrastructure. This is implicit, of course, not explicit, but that's the nature of soft power. The U.S. never has to threaten to take away GPS from anyone because it's understood that this is a gift easily given and potentially easily taken away. Other governments, then, might understandably want some of that same soft power. Russia's GLONASS network already serves the upper and lower latitudes better than the US's GPS, which means they might have additional leverage when it comes to trade and politicking in the Arctic and Antarctic, especially in the near future as those pathways begin to melt and become more accessible. The other governments getting involved in this space almost certainly want to make sure that they are not left out of this new soft power grab and also want to make sure that they are not reliant on some other nation, to know where their planes are, where their shipping containers end up, and where their military assets are located. And that same concern underpins the military benefits of having this sort of system in place. If you can keep track of all your soldiers, ships, planes, and so on, using GPS or a similar system, to know where they are within a foot, or perhaps even an inch, assuming the military-grade GPS is superior to the system available to the rest of us, That's a huge leg up over an enemy who does not have that kind of real-time situational awareness. What's more, GPS and similar technologies are used to guide missiles, to locate enemy hideouts and sick drones on them, and to guide soldiers on the ground who are operating under the cover of darkness or urban clutter or whatever else. It's no mistake that China has invested heavily in the ability to knock satellites out of orbit using kinetic projectiles. Essentially shooting a missile up into space to slam into a satellite, destroying both missile and satellite. It's assumed this measure was developed as a first strike or response capability to counter one of the United States' greatest military assets, its GPS system, in the event of a physical hot war showdown. Above and beyond the damage that would be caused to the everyday person, who are suddenly unable to find their way to where they'd like to go, unable to have anything delivered, unable to use the majority of their real-world interacting apps, destroying some of the satellites in this constellation would quite probably dramatically weaken much of the United States' military capabilities, reliant as many of them have become on this type of real-time intelligence and geographic data. And finally, the GPS system is good for the U.S. economy and would presumably be good for other economies who build similar systems as well. A very preliminary and incomplete research project was conducted by the U.S. government in 2015 that tried to estimate the monetary benefits of the GPS system. And the conclusion at the time was that... Based on only the industries that they looked at, which included about a dozen very boring-sounding industries like earth-moving and agriculture, the program, which cost the government about $12 billion, that's for the GPS program, has brought in somewhere in the neighborhood of $56 billion as a direct consequence of its existence. Now, again, that is only taking into account a very small number of industries, and it doesn't include non-monetary benefits like the ability to go for a run with the GPS on your watch or phone and to know how far you went during that run, or the ability to get to and from places that you've never been before in your car or your Uber. So if that's the number that they've already been able to measure And that was in 2015, and the costs to run the program are fairly steady, but the use has been increasing, and the system has been used for an increasingly large number of valuable things. The GPS system would seem to have been a stellar investment for United States taxpayers. It makes sense, then, that other governments would want a piece of that action, would want their own internally-controlled network that would help their local industries produce more and better stuff, would allow their people to benefit from all kinds of difficult-to-measure but very real positive outcomes, and would allow them to feel both more monetarily secure and less vulnerable to outside soft power influences. The meta-narrative of this story, beyond focusing on this technology in isolation, is that the networked world is itself fragmenting. That TechCrunch piece does a good job of mentioning this, actually. What we're looking at here is not a world in which there's more than one GPS-like system. We're looking at a world in which there are potentially multiple internets, multiple satellite networks, multiple streams of information and mediums of communication. Now one way to look at that is to be disconcerted, maybe even horrified. One of the benefits of the internet, and all these other technologies after all, is that they are networks. The network effect, which basically says the benefit found in such things, compounds as more people join. A dating site, with few people on it for instance, is not as valuable as a dating site with billions of people on it. That network effect could disappear with GPS, with the internet, with mass communication as a whole. We've already seen the beginnings of this division within countries with censored internet systems, cut off in large part from the rest of the world. And once we're all using different satellites to tell us where to go to get lunch and how to get to our parents' homes several cities over, it may be that our perception of our physical reality also changes. It may sound silly, but for a long while, the difference between Apple Maps, their app, and the Google Maps app was so stark that there were memes about being able to tell an iPhone user because of how confused they were about where they were going and how they were just as likely to end up in a lake as they were to safely arrive at the supermarket. The same could be true of entire nations of people, each seeing different cartographic realities about their own countries and the world on their devices. Their positions could be subjectively shifted based on governmental whim or political necessity, rather than having their individual positions agreed upon by the one network that we all use to figure out where we are, and thereby where we are in relation to each other. What's more, as these new networks go live, there will be competition and stratification within the tech world to see who can get the most device makers to include their chips, their receivers for their systems, in the most popular devices. It's already an open guess that Apple will cede to China's wishes that they begin to include Beidou chips in iPhones that are sold in the country. And it's not a big leap to assume that other countries will begin to insist the same. Not every government has the economic sway that China has, of course. But at a certain point, there's only really so much space inside a phone. So this could create further divides between the hardware we use as well. A phone from China may not work properly in the United States, or it will, but it will be beholden to China's GPS replacement, which means someone from the United States using China's satellites may perceive themselves as being in a different location than the folks around them who are all using GPS. So there's a very practical, real set of concerns here, many of which will come to fruition in the next few years, beginning now in 2019. But there are also larger meta-questions about the relativity of place and who controls our subjective assessment of where we're located. It may be that we'll individually need to come up with better understandings of our own position in the world, based on a combination of data from different sources. It may also become necessary to develop a more objective language and set of tools for communicating such coordinates, as the ones we're using now seem to be increasingly showing their flaws, even as they become increasingly vital and ubiquitous. (laughs) The documentary that I'd like to recommend today is one that I watched just recently and really enjoyed. It was something that had been recommended to me by several different people, and it seemed like something that would be fascinating. It's called Three Identical Strangers. And it is a multifaceted documentary in that there are definitely feel-good vibes to it. It's just a really fascinating, interesting story that some people, depending on their age and how much they paid attention to U.S. pop culture at certain periods in history, might actually remember playing out in real time. But it also, very importantly, gets into issues like ethics when it comes to both public life and things like scientific research, the consequences of fame, and the way that we address things like genetics and lineage and the things that we do and have done in the past to try to understand these things more concretely. I don't want to give away too much more than that, but I do think you'll enjoy, if you get the chance, Three Identical Strangers. You can find it all over the place. I think I might have watched it on Amazon Prime or YouTube, but Google around a little bit and you should be able to find it. Three Identical Strangers. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find out more about the tour that I'm currently on at becomingtour.com. And you can find that new project that I mentioned at somethoughtsaboutliving.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name pretty much everywhere. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.